Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Good morning, Hill City. The reading today is from Luke 19, 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." So we've been walking through this book of Luke, this gospel according to Luke for, gosh, a year and a half now. We'll finish it at the end of the summer, by the way, where the finish line is almost there. If, if you want to understand Jesus and understand Jesus and Israel and all that's going on here, as you read any gospel account, understanding the, the scene, here's what you must know. If, if, if you were a Jew, you have been waiting on the promised Messiah for 300 years with no word from God on when. The, the last writings you have from the prophets is, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And so you have been waiting and you have heard your grandfather tell stories and your father tell stories, your great-great-grandfather told stories, your grandfather, like these have been going on. The Messiah will come deliver us. He will come and rescue us. And, and to understand Jesus, to understand this story, to understand what's going on, You've got to understand that the Messiah talk is at a fever pitch level. Like, is this it? Is this the time? It's like St. Louis Blues fans. Are we going to do it? Is this? (laughs) That's how, that's what it is right there. We've got to understand this frame of mind. Like, that is what they're hoping for. And the word about Jesus of Nazareth has spread. We are less than a week now from the death of Jesus timeline. Everyone in the region has heard about this Jesus that claims he's Messiah. They've heard of miracles that he's done. They've heard that he's raised people from the dead. They've, they've heard all these things. And there is a starting to be this swell, this fever pitch around this person of Jesus saying, okay, this is the year. This is the year. 
But here's the problem with Jesus, and we're going to see this in the story. He's different than they expected. And we've talked about this over and over. When they think Messiah, what's the picture they have in their mind? Strong, might, horse, sword, right? That's what they think of Messiah. A, a victor, a king that will come and rule in battle, that will defeat the enemies, rule in peace. That is the idea in their mind. And if you've studied Jesus at all, he's different, isn't he? It, it reminds me, this is a stupid illustration, it reminds me of Star Wars. Luke Skywalker is told to go find the old Jedi master, and he goes and he lands his plane in a swamp, right, looking for this Jedi master from long ago, and out comes this little green guy about this tall with big ears. And he looks like, like, Jedi master? Now, we find out a few movies later that he can actually fight pretty cool, but we don't see him in that movie. Jesus might as well have been a little green guy with big ears for the Jews. Totally, their expectations just, he just, it wasn't him. And that is what's going on with this. And so we see, let's jump to verse 28. Jesus goes ahead. He's on the way to Jerusalem. This, that's where he will be executed, is Jerusalem. Several chapters earlier, Luke told us he has set his face towards Jerusalem. So he's been traveling towards Jerusalem for weeks and weeks and weeks. Many stories have happened on that journey to Jerusalem. Now he is about a mile and a half outside the city, and he, and he comes to a place called Bethany. This is where the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus is. Lazarus, come forth. You heard this story? He comes out of the grave. That's there, right outside the walls of Jerusalem, a mile and a half. And so you have Jerusalem up on a hill. You have a deep valley called the Kindred Valley. Kindred valley. And then up on another hill is the Mount of Olives, and that's where Bethany is right there. Give you the distance. So he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's a mile and a half outside the city. He spends a day or two in Bethany. While he's there, we can, we can read from the other gospel accounts, there's a feast held in his honor. He has many interactions, this huge crowd comes, because this whole like raising someone from the dead will draw a crowd. It will. So he's already done this, he's back in that same village, and this whole crowd comes again like, all right, let's see what else he's got, this is going to be cool. And then he leaves the next morning, and he starts walking to Jerusalem, the short journey to the city. Side note, the day he's going to cross the Kidron Valley, come up on the hill and enter Jerusalem, is the same day that, because, because the season, you're going to hear in a second, the season is Passover. It's a, it's a several day feast where the Jews celebrate something. As he comes in the city, it's the same day on Passover when the lambs were chosen for slaughter. There's a whole sermon in itself. Same day, Jesus enters Jerusalem. It's the day the priest would pick out the lambs to slaughter for Passover. By the way, the day he died is the same day the lambs were slaughtered. Yeah. All kinds of stuff going on here. So he's on the way to Jerusalem, coming down the valley. He sends two of his disciples, verse 30, says, Go into the village in front of you, and entering you'll find a colt, on which no one has ever ridden. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? So he tells, go get this colt, go untie it. If someone asks you, why are you untying it? Say the Lord needs it. And so they go ahead, and just as they said, there is a colt, a donkey, 
They untie it. The owner says, why are you untying this? That's a good question. And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now, as I've heard this story and read this story, that was always an interesting detail to me. Like in, in, the, in the grand scheme of this storyline, why a story about a donkey being untied and brought to Jesus? Is it, is it simply to show that Jesus has like omnipresence, he can see in front of what hasn't happened and say, hey, there'll be a donkey here? Maybe, maybe. But if you're reading this and you know your Old Testament, and again, to the Jewish audience that's reading this, they know their Old Testament. There's a reason that Jesus rode into town on a donkey, and it comes from one of the last books of the Old Testament. A prophet named Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, it's Jerusalem, Zion, Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, king, Messiah, same thing, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus, is, it's not just that Jesus sends these disciples going to a colt because that would make a cool trick. Hey, I know the future. No, there's a, there's a reason he's fulfilling a prophecy by riding in. And everyone that would have seen Jesus riding in a donkey, the, the, the Jews that would have seen this, automatically Zacharias flashes into their minds, our king or ride on a donkey. Maybe this is the year. Blues fans, you here? Okay, maybe this is the year. He rides it. Now, some of you are skeptics. Any skeptics? I'm a skeptic. Wait a second, wait a second. All right, time out. This Messiah thing's easy. Like, if you want to convince someone you're the Messiah, just look at the, the scriptures the prophecies that talk about a Messiah and get a donkey and ride into town. Done. Debunk Jesus. Okay, I'll give you that here. The problem is his birth. He didn't predict that. Like He, he couldn't control that. And all the other prophecies that talk about Jesus. And, and we could do a whole other sermon about that. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that talk about the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. Many of which were completely out of his control. Read Isaiah 55. He's getting ready to have that happen to him. But he rides on this donkey and he comes into town and Jesus is, is no doubt presenting himself as king. And he's marching in. If you, if you can imagine, like as I read scripture, I try to allow myself like a movie, like to see this as a movie. If you can picture this, Jesus riding on this donkey, all the disciples are around him and they start shouting out like, here comes the king, basically. Here comes your Messiah. And Jesus riding a donkey, and he's coming down over this hill, and he's going to cross the Kidron Valley and, and come up. He's on the Mount of Olives here across, come up, and he's going to come in Jerusalem. If you can imagine the scene and the frantic, like, what's happening here? Because in Israel, there is always an uprising in the air. Remember, they are in bondage to Rome. They are a, they, they are a conquered nation. And there is always this talk of rebellion, of the rebels, of, of these zealots of Israel that would come, and they would, like, work this is the year, we're going to up, uprise, rise over Rome, we're going to kick them out. And there was always talk of this. As a matter of fact, 30 years before this, the year right around the time Jesus was born, in the hometown next to him, there was an uprising where a group of rebels rose up out of the Jewish circle, got a bunch of other Jews and tried to overthrow Rome, ended badly, three of their cities are burned, 2,000 Jews are crucified in Jerusalem because of that uprising. 
Like, this is not something new for Israel. There is always an uprising getting ready to swell. And so as Jesus is coming in, imagine this. He's coming in. His disciples, which don't think 12, he's got like 100 and some. Like, this whole group is shouting, like, here comes your king. Here comes your king. And a large crowd joins in. No doubt the crowd that maybe had been with him in Bethany when, when, and kind of seen this Lazarus thing. And this whole crowd starts joining in. And they start taking palm branches and laying them down at the feet of Jesus. Disciples are taking off their cloaks. The crowd are putting palm branches. Here's how John writes about it. The next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Remember I told you there's this, there's this talk around who Jesus is. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. I want you to see this. What is the crowd saying? He's the Messiah. He is the King. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as is written, and John actually quotes this passage from Zechariah. This is cool, verse 16 of, in John, his disciples did not understand things at first, but when Jesus glorified, they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. So he, John even says, even his disciples, which John was one of them, are coming to town, they, they, are, they just don't understand what's happening. They don't understand. And the people start crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This word Hosanna it's not just this, oh, praise Jesus, praise God. It's not necessarily that. Here's what Hosanna is. It's a battle cry. It's a battle cry. It's like, hooyah, something like that. It's a battle cry for the zealots, which is zealots, a political party in Israel, Jews that are ready to rebel against Rome, another uprising. It's their battle cry. Here's what's happening. The crowd, Jesus is coming into town. They've heard about him. They believe now he's the Messiah. When I say believe intellectually, they believe that he's the Messiah. They're crying out, all right, Hosanna, battle cry. Let's go. It's time to kill Rome. We're in charge now. That's what's happening here. And there, this, this had to be, I wish we could go back and like there's a movie of this because this had to be just an incredible scene of people shouting and dancing and crying and celebrating. Oh, here we go. We've been waiting for years and years and years, and now is the year. And palm branches, it's not just like they needed something to cover the ground. Palm branches are a symbol of Jewish nationality. American flag. That's what the palm branches are. Now, if we can increase the drama here, it's the feast of the Passover. That's what Jesus is coming to town for. And this is why Jerusalem is, the, the crowds are swelled. Like Jerusalem is not as big as it is right now. People have traveled from all around to ce celebrate the Passover, this several day feast. Now question, what is the Passover a celebration of? Good answer, the Passover. Here's what they're celebrating. I asked that on Wednesday. Sean was there, with, and they're like, uh, I'm like, guys, the Passover is a celebration of, okay, what day is the 4th of July? <laughs> Sorry, I get a little sassy sometimes. <laughs> they're celebrating the Passover. Here's what the Passover is. It goes back to Israel's history. They're in bondage in Egypt. 
They're told by Moses, the next day you will be delivered. Take a lamb, slaughter it, put, it on your door, put the blood on your doorstep. You guys heard this story, right? And an angel of death will come who will pass over all of the homes, the, the Israelite homes that have this blood on the door, and out of that you will be freed. Guys, the Passover is their 4th of July. It's their Independence Day. It is the celebration of when they have been delivered by a tyrant nation. Do you, do you feel the anticipation? Jesus coming into Jerusalem at Passover. I mean, again, I've told you, that, like, let's say, I don't know why it's always Canada. Canada's come down. They've conquered us. They may, I don't know why Canada. They make us eat maple syrup on everything. You're sick of it. Like when, when, and it's Independence Day, and here comes this person saying, okay, I'm the king. It's like, all right, like all the, all the, the, the good old boys getting the, their fireworks out and just have a grand time. Watch this. Like that's what's going on. Like you could not set the stage better. And that's why the frenzy is growing so good. This is your Independence Day that your king, your Messiah is coming to town. Like the cards are laying out perfect. And if we can increase the drama just a little bit more, not that we need it, Jesus is entering in on the east side of town. This triumphal entry is what people call this. Crowd of people screaming, dancing, shouting, all this stuff. That same day, history tells us, not the Bible, just history tells us, on the west side of Jerusalem, which when we think Jerusalem, can we, let's think like kind of this area of downtown Springfield. Let's think the square is the temple Maybe go a few blocks this way, a few blocks north, south. That's the size of Jerusalem. Don't think like Springfield proper. Downtown. That same day that Jesus comes in on the east side, there's another triumphal entry on the west side. And this is Pilate, the Roman governor. And when he enters on the, why do you think he's coming to town? It's Independence Day. And he knows there's a good chance there's going to be an uprising. He's heard about Jesus too, and he rolls into town. And when Pilate rolls into town, here's what history tells us. When he rolls into town on the west side, he makes it, makes sure that everyone knows that Rome is in charge. He had a huge battalion of soldiers come, cavalry that are, that are you know, men mounted on horseback with spears. And, and like, one of the things I love in football season is the entry, you know, when teams come and like, and the, the crowd goes wild and the smoke and all that stuff. I wish we could hear or see an entry of a battalion of Roman soldiers coming with their metal on, their armor, all marching in unison. Just the sound of that alone would just be this intimidating, like, oh my goodness. The same day Jesus enters on the east, this comes on the west. It's like a, looks like a boxing thing. Oh, from the east corner, here comes Jesus riding on a donkey. From the west corner, Pilate on the stallion with army soldiers. It's a demonstration of two kingdoms. Kingdom of Jesus, service, humility, death. Kingdom of the world, victory, pride, power. And so that's what's going on. And I want us to see what happens here. When Israel sees all these people, they start shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They start crying out, Jesus, you are king. You are Messiah. They believe, intellectually, 
They're ready to reign. They're ready for their king. They're ready for the Messiah. No, they're ready for their version of the Messiah. See, they love Jesus, the Jesus they've created. They love their own version of Jesus. Is that not humanity? Like, in their desire for this king, this rescuer, this this person, this charismatic leader, they are shouting out what, what humanity has for thousands of years. We want a king. We want a leader. We want someone that will lead, like, that's what, like, look, look at history. You guys know I love history. Like, over and over and over, nations, people have welcomed in, danced with joy for some, the next tyrant leader that will then treat them very harshly. That's the story of humanity. Let's go World War, World War I, World War II, Germany. Germany's conquered in World War I. The Treaty of Versailles is what ends World War I. Germans felt that they got um, the bad end of that. They felt ridiculed. They felt like they got taken advantage of. But here comes a charismatic young leader named Hitler. And he promises that he will restore Germany to its original glory. Yeah, the Treaty of Versailles, you got, you got dealt badly here, but I will lead you out. And hear me, if any of us would have been in Germany at this time, you would have been like, Hitler, you would have. He promised to bring you into prosperity. You would have wanted him too. They didn't know how lunatic he was yet. And that, like that, and here's why, why do I use that example? It's a story of humanity. We want a king. We do. I would argue because we are created in Genesis to have a king called Yahweh, the Lord. And that in our hearts, every single nation, every single person desires a king, wants to find a savior. Just watch how we throw ourselves to the next person that promises to deliver us. Chiefs fans, Patrick Mahomes. See, he's our savior. We are constantly looking for someone to idolize. Someone that promises us something. And here's the deal. If we don't find the real king, King Jesus, whoever we attach our hope to will let us down. And so here's what happens. You and I, and I'll, I'll, I'll get into this more in a, in, a, in a later sermon. You and I are a mix of lust and anger. When I say lust, I don't necessarily mean just like sexual lust, just lust, a desire gone mad. Like these Israelites, they have a lust for power and peace, like prosperity. They have desire gone mad. That's lust. You and I, like we are constantly lusting after something. If I could just have blank, fill in your blank, lust. And then the flip side of that is anger, because when you don't get it, you're mad about it. I am too. And that's why this crowd, like I've always wondered, why is this crowd shouting, Hosanna, here comes, like, oh, Jesus, and then like three or four days later, crucify him, lust and anger. 
They had their desire gone mad for what the king was going to be. They were fine with Jesus as long as he lived into that. But as soon as they realized that's not who he was, kill him. Lust and anger. It's true of you and me. So this is all happening. Crowd, all these wrong expectations of who Jesus is, but they believe, like, here we go, verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Notice the Pharisees realize they are out of control here. (laughs) They don't even try to do anything about this whole thing. So they go to Jesus and say, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. This is wrong. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, again, Jesus has always, always has interesting responses to the Pharisees, doesn't he? Jesus, rebuke your disciples. If these were silent, the stones would cry out. Um, okay. What's happening here? So, again, as I've read this, I've always assumed Jesus just saying, hey, if the, I'm king, if these people didn't cry out and scream, And shout, the the stones will, because the truth is I'm king. I thought that's what's going on here. Maybe it is. But as I've been studying this over the past few weeks, coming across people that, uh, and reading people that understand Jewish life and rabbi life, and we've talked some about this. Here's what these guys say, is that Jesus isn't just quoting, because he quotes an Old Testament passage here about stones crying out of something silent. They're saying Jesus is not just simply saying, oh, people need to shout because I'm king. He's actually doing something that's done often in Jewish circles, and it's called remez, R-E-M-E-Z. It means hint. And here's this idea of rez, that if if, uh, Tucker and I are Jewish rabbis, okay, right, Tuck? Yeah, we're we're pretty brilliant like that, that we might kind of argue back and forth or, or debate back and forth, but instead of like directly saying what we're saying, we'll actually use Old Testament passages to talk about it. But this idea of remez is we're not going to necessarily use the phrase from the passage that we mean. This, is, this is, sounds crazy, I know. When we mention one verse, actually we're talking about either the verse before or after. And when I say that, I expect Tucker to know that. And it's kind of a test of, do you know the scriptures like I do? That's this idea of remez. You can see this all throughout the, the interactions with Jesus. When he quotes a passage... In dealing with the Pharisees or religious leaders, often if you look before or after, there's another verse that's like, ooh, I see what's happening here. So these Jewish scholars say this, when Jesus quotes this passage about stones crying out, he's quoting a passage in Habakkuk. It's Habakkuk chapter 2, verse, he quotes verse 11. Look at verse 11, the end. For the stone will cry out from the wall. That's the passage Jesus quotes. If these were silent, the stones will cry out. But this idea of remez is he's not necessarily meaning that verse. He's meaning either the verse before or after. Let's look before. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples, and you have forfeited your life. Here's what the Jewish scholars say, that Jesus is telling these Pharisees, you're done. You have led the people of Israel astray. They've believed you. They're going to reject me, and your very lives are done. That's why they're going to kill him in three days. Because <laughs> these Jewish scholars said they would have known what he's doing, and they would have taken offense to this. I don't know. It's an idea. I thought it was pretty cool. 
Verse 41. And Jesus drew near to the city and he wept over it. So again, let's go back to our scene. People are going crazy. They're dancing. They're, cream, they're screaming. Women are you know, throwing their babies up in the air and just like celebrating. Maybe the men are. The women are. The men are like, the women are like oh, don't do that. The men are like, woo. <laughs> right? Men, it's always us to throw them up in the air and catch them. This celebration. And it's following Jesus as he comes down from the Mount of Olives down crosses the Kidron Valley, and as you can imagine, as he comes back up and as he sees Jerusalem, and I wish we could see Jerusalem. Oh, it was, it was beautiful. The temple, gold, like, must have just like glistened in the sunlight. Jesus seized Jerusalem, and he breaks down and weeps. This word weep, there's many words uh, in, in the Bible for cry, but this word that shows up for the word weep here means like, just weeps bitterly, uncontrollably. Jesus breaks down. And if we can put ourselves in the, in the, in the mind, the body of, of Jesus, because he's fully God, but he's fully man. As he comes into Jerusalem, he knows what's in store for him. Can, can you imagine the stress of just that, of knowing the physical pain, knowing the rejection, like he knows what's in store. He sees all of these people Shouting what's true, but they don't believe what's true. And he sees women dancing and men throwing their kids out. And he sees his little bit and he just weeps. The crowd shouting for joy, Jesus in sorrow. The crowd, victory in battle, Jesus, victory through suffering. The crowd, peace. Jesus sees destruction. And Jesus, he weeps. He weeps. And here's what he says in verse 42. Would, Jerusalem, that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. Like, Jerusalem, the things that make for peace is not me coming in with a sword to kill the Romans. I come with a different kind of peace. But he weeps and he says, but now these things are hidden from your eyes and the people are going to turn on him in the next couple of days. And then here's what he says, and this is Jesus as prophet speaking to the future. He says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Here's what Jesus does. As he comes into town, he sees Jerusalem, he's moved with emotion for them. Compassion, like heartfelt, like, why can't you get this? But he also knows what's coming. And if you can imagine, Jesus, he sees a mom holding a baby. And the mom's face is joy and laughter, but he knows what's coming. Because in 30 years, about 30 years, Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by the Rome, Roman army. Because there's an uprising that's going to come. I told you there's always an uprising. That uprising comes. Rome responds. And for weeks upon end, they surround the city and bring in 
just barrages of attacks. And eventually, Jerusalem is, is so surrounded, they start starving inside. There's talks like people that start eating one another, cannibalism. Men, women, children are slaughtered, and the city's torn to the ground. And Jesus knows what's coming. It's like, oh, Jerusalem, if you only knew what made for peace. And he weeps. See, they want a king. They want a Messiah. But they don't want Jesus. And when he's not who they think he is, they hate him. They want a king, and they hate the king. Believers, can I tell you something? We want a king, but we hate the king. Here's what I mean by that. Everyone, like, look, look at, our, look at our, our country. Let's take America. Look at our country. We want a God. We want a king. Like, Americans believe in God. I think it's like 95% of Americans believe in a God, right? But here's the idea of, of really what we believe. We want a God, but we want a God who lets me say, I am my own God. Fair? We want a king, but we hate a king that has any authority over us. So like in America, believing in God is really, really easy. Watch, watch, the, next, watch the next award show and the rapper comes, I just want to thank God. God's like, I didn't, I'm not part of that album. I guarantee he says that about pop country. Anyway, then, <laughs> don't get me started. Don't get me, I'm going to get back up, back up. It's easy, am I right? Everyone, I believe in God. It's easy to say, I believe in Jesus. The Jesus, the hippie Jesus says, oh, I love everybody. We want a God, we want a king, but we hate the king because the king tells us how to live and we don't like it. So in America, it's easy to say, I believe in God, but all of a sudden, if you say, I believe in the God of the Bible, now you're dogmatic. Now you hate people, right? Well, I believe in Jesus, well, that's easy. I believe in the Jesus of revealed in the Bible, all of Jesus. Well, you're just not very accepting of other people. We want a king. We love the idea of a king. But we hate the king. We hate him. Because he has authority over us. So, see, non-Christians don't hate God. They hate the biblical God. They don't hate Jesus. They hate the biblical Jesus. They hate the Jesus that says, deny yourself. I don't want to do that. <laughs> Remember, like the theme of hell, I'm my own God. That, that is the theme. That's the theme of our society. We hate the Jesus that tells us, forgive your enemies. Forgive? I'd rather rant on Facebook of how wrong they are. Christians, can, can we be honest? Now, I know it's church. It's a hard thing to do. We love the king, but we hate the king. Like this morning, we sang songs, Hosanna, Jesus, you're my king, with part of our heart, but the other heart, we hate his authority over us. Because Jesus tells us what to do with our finances. 
See, I love a Jesus that says, yeah, you can do whatever you want, spend money on. I hate the Jesus that tells me to give generously. And you do too. I, I, I love the Jesus that is all about love and but I hate the Jesus that tells me if I have an enemy, it's like I murder them. If I have hate for someone, it's like I'm murdering them. I don't like that Jesus. We hate the king because he tells us what to do with our free time. And he tells us it's not really ours. <laughs> it's his. We hate the king that tells us what to do with our sexuality. Like you want to, you want to start a fight around Jesus, let Jesus come into a conversation around sexuality. And that room will divide very quickly. No one can tell me what to do. My, my God is the one that we love the king and we hate the king. We were just sitting around with our staff talking this week and we were talking about this for the city vision and people serving and how do we get more people serving and there's this really honest moment around our staff where someone asked the question, so since we launched this, launched this vision a couple of months ago, like how many, anyone in the staff, like how many of us have served in a city, in the city, kind of outside of Hill City? crickets. You know why? I love the idea of that. I hate it. I don't want to go serve. I want to hang out with my friends. Right? Can, Christian, can we name that we love the king, but at the same time we hate the king? Because that, that's what's going on here. Like, we... I, I, we, I would rather treat Jesus as a consultant than a king. You know what you do with a consultant? You bring him in. Yeah, give me a few recommendations. Yeah, I'll take that one. Yeah, not that. Jesus doesn't allow that. Jesus never claimed to be a consultant. He claimed to be king. So here's the question. If you're a believer, can you admit it? Can you name it? Yeah, Jesus, I came and I sing to you today, but I'm going to walk out here in an hour. I'm going to hate something that you want for me. Can you name it? And then can you see the problem of that? Like, here's the difference in a Christian and a non-Christian. Please hear me on this. A non-Christian doesn't care that they just will take parts of Jesus. Like, I don't care. I can do that. I'm my own God. I can take this part. I can, I can make Jesus whatever I want to be. I can make God, like my version of God. A Christian's names, I can't do that. Now, functionally, I do it all the time, and that's where repentance come in. Like, that's the difference. Like, let us never look at the non-Christian meaning. I can't believe you would do that. Really? We do it too. True? So Christian has the courage to name yeah, I love the king, but I hate the king. Now here's a question, believers. What's the posture of Jesus in this story? Weeping. And the question we ask a lot here as we do discipleship is when you see God, what's the look on his face towards you? And most of the time we hear like he's disappointed, he's angry, he's like, come on, get this right. Can you see the tears of Jesus on your behalf this morning? 
Like in you naming, I love the king, but yet here's all the ways I don't like the king, I hate the king, I don't like his authority. Can you see Jesus as weeping? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would like to gather you under my wings as a hen gathers his young. That's how Matthew has him saying this. Can you hear Jesus saying, oh, insert your name, how I would longed to gather you underneath my wings, my authority. Can you see his tears on your behalf? Not his anger, not his frustration, not his, come on, let's get this right. Like as you were singing today, oh, praise Jesus, but all these things in your heart where you don't believe and you, and you rebel and you hate his authority, can you see his tears on your behalf? And can you see that as this gracious invitation of Jesus to come to him? Come to him. So hear me. Some of us deal with anger like really bad, like we can just explode in our homes and in our workplaces. You know why? We hate the king. We hate a king that doesn't allow us to just throw fit. We hate that. Can you see the tears of Jesus on your half? And, oh, Daniel, come to me with your anger. How I've longed in your anger to gather you underneath my rule and reign. Can you hear that for yourself? We have a lot of people who are not married in your relationships that maybe aren't where they need to be. Can you hear the invitation of Jesus? Oh, how I've longed to gather you in a relationship that's true and pure and holy. Come to me. Because his posture in this is not like, come on, get this right. That's not his posture. Tears on your behalf. In your life of ease. Because let's be honest, we'd rather just float through life, hitting happy hours, going to the lake every weekend, Right? Can you hear the words of Jesus? Oh, how I've longed to help you find a mission and a passion that's bigger than you. He's not angry. He's weeping on your behalf that you might trust him in the midst of your sexual struggle that you're ashamed of. Can you hear the tears of Jesus inviting you to come out of hiding and name, yes, I struggle here. And be welcomed to work through towards healing. Can you hear his tears on your behalf? Because he's good. Israel hates him now. Because he's not who they think he's going to. Like they want a king that will come and deliver him. Now you and I with perspective. Jesus entering in not to create this human kingdom with power, but to, to, like, to die for their sins. Can you see that he's good in this? Can we see that? Can we agree? It's better for Israel that he would come in and die for their sins than he would kill the Romans. Would we agree with that? Their bigger problem is their sin and brokenness, not Rome. In the midst of your struggles, can you believe that he's good? He's better. His, the real Jesus, is better than your version of Jesus. Can you believe it? Can you name it when you don't believe it? And can you hear his tears inviting you back home? So this story is the one of the triumphal entry where Jesus enters Jerusalem as a sacrificial lamb to die for the sins of the people. But let's make sure we know this. The Bible tells us there will be a second triumphal entry of Jesus. And this one, he ain't going to be riding a donkey, riding a horse. He's got a sword and he's tattooed all over. Some of you moms don't like that I just said that. No, Daniel, take that out. It's tattooed. And he's coming to kill evil and to judge 
forever. Like, and as we close, like, make sure we get this. Because sometimes we can characterize Jesus as this nice, hippie guy with long hair that walked around saying peace and love. There's a posture of Jesus of love, but I want us to know when he comes back the second time, it's not that. It is judgment. And there's times in Jesus' life where he pronounces that. He, tell, he tells a whole city one time in Matthew, I tell you, I will, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon, countries or towns that were destroyed, than for you. Jesus tells a whole city, because of your rebellion, when I come back and judge things, like, you guys are done. He'll say this, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Can we, can we make sure and hear the real Jesus, that he's patient and kind and slow to anger, but he's coming back and judgment is there. And hear me, like, I hope you hear my posture. It's not like you better turn or burn. It's not what I'm saying. But we've got to present the real Jesus. Me, I would love to just teach the Jesus of peace and comfort. But there's a real Jesus that's going to come back and judge evil. And if we fail to admit that he's the king and, and put ourselves under his rule and reign and name the problem with us making up our own God, he's not our king. And if he's not our king on this earth, then we're saying we don't want him to be our king in eternity. So what do you do with this today? Is your heart hard? I don't care. I'm doing my thing. I'm my own God. Okay, Jesus gives you that permission. But he doesn't allow you to claim him as your God when he comes back to judge. Christians, you call yourself a Christian. Where do you need to hear the tears of Jesus and see the tears of Jesus on your behalf saying, come back, I'm better I'm better than whatever savior, whatever thing that you, I'm better. And can you let go? Can you name that and open your hands and respond to him? As we come to communion today, this table is a reminder. It's a reminder of Jesus' sacrifice, but it's also a reminder of his lordship over our lives. As you come and you dip the bread in the cup, You're naming that he was your sacrifice for sin, but you're also saying, Jesus, you're my king. May you, may we want the real Jesus, the real king. Let's pray together.